0: I want to start by thanking you for your partnership with us over so many years and that partnership goes back well before we were in Turkey. Um, you partnered with us to send us there but for many of you our relationships go way back from before even the founding of Christ Church when some of us were at the college church together. Uh, and. So we value that history and those relationships and that heritage and the partnership that we have and had when I was pastor at Stony Brook Community Church uh, and then now continue to have as you uh, send us in a sense as your representatives to partner as a church with churches in Turkey. I think that's how we should think about the sending of representatives. You're sending us as your representatives to a country, but more to the people of that country who God will call into his fellowship. And so, greetings on behalf of our friends in Turkey and the church in Turkey, and thank you from them as well. The church in Turkey is tiny. We have in the entire country of 83 million people about 7,000 Protestant believers in maybe 100, 110 different fellowships. Most of them uh, smaller than this. Some of them in the bigger cities, a few that might be a little bit bigger than this, but not very many. And this church is a church that is very young. It's really only 30 to 40 years old that there have been significant Protestant uh, Christians in Turkey at all. And it's a suffering church. It's a church that faces an enormous amount of pressure socially. It's legal to be a Christian in Turkey. This is one of our blessings. It's uh, freedom of religion is constitutionally protected, but that does not mean it's easy. It can be extremely hard uh, for people to be, Christians there and so we have this small collection of churches scattered over this uh, you know large area large population many of them feeling under pressure uh, tempted by the culture tempted to compromise and plagued by false teaching as churches everywhere are and it's amazing when we look at our situation in Turkey now and look at those churches and think, my goodness, will this survive? It's easy to become discouraged, and it's amazing how similar it is to the churches that the Apostle John was addressing in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, if you'll turn with me there now, uh, chapter 2 of the book of Revelation, Let me read this passage and then I'll back up and talk a little bit more about what's going on here. Revelation chapter 2, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So the Apostle John is writing these words. Uh, He is on the island of Patmos. Patmos is just off of the coast of Turkey. You can visit it from Turkey, but not too easily because it's a Greek island. In the settlement after the First World War, Greece got the islands because you know Turkey didn't have much of a navy, so Greece has most of the islands. So Patmos is a Greek island, and I would not recommend it as one of the choice Greek islands to visit. It's rather bleak, right? It's just basically a rock, you know. You can visit, and you know, interesting maybe for historical reasons because an important book was there. But good place to have a prison, which is where John was. So John's in prison on the island of Patmos in exile, and He, as he surveys the churches of the world that he knows, mostly in Asia Minor, what's he thinking? Well, I would say it's likely that he is thinking this is a bleak picture. The picture on Patmos was bleak geographically and the picture for the church was pretty bleak as well. As he looks out, he's going to be seeing churches that are suffering, suffering, that are small, that are tempted to compromise with the culture around them, that are plagued by false teaching. And here's John, one of the leaders of the church, and he's sort of the last apostle standing. Because as he looks out, he's going to remember and see that actually many of his partners in the gospel are now dead, killed through persecution, or scattered. So first to fall was James in about 44 AD. Uh, Fairly recently, before John is writing, Peter would have been probably crucified. In Rome at in AD 64 the great persecution of Nero between AD 64 and 68 we it's likely that Paul was killed during at the end of that persecution as well so here is John sitting on this island and all of these great church leaders dead and he's sort of alone there doesn't look good right the situation for the church does not look good from this vantage point so as John looks out, he has a vision. It's the Lord's day. Read in the first chapter of Revelation. It's the Lord's day and he ha- he's in the spirit and he has this vision. And in this vision, a voice says to him, write, write a letter to these seven churches, churches in Ephesus, in Smyrna, that's modern day Izmir. I'll probably end up calling it Izmir rather than Smyrna most of the time. It's to Pergamum or Bergama, Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. These seven churches. Did I get all of them? Please check on me. Sometimes I forget one. Write a letter to these seven churches. This is a fairly normal thing, right, for an apostle to do, to write a letter, right? He's told to write a letter. He writes a letter. The letter he writes is anything but normal. Of course, you know this, right? You've read Revelation. Revelation is not an ordinary letter at all but the whole thing and this is what we often forget the whole thing is a letter the whole book is a letter to these seven churches from beginning to end the whole thing but in this letter it's bizarre we have uh, not too far from us in clinton massachusetts where we are right now people who seem to love lawn ornaments and especially apparently around this time of year, they love their lawn ornaments. And they're terrible lawn ornaments. I mean, they are the ugliest things imaginable. They're meant to be scary. Some of them are just silly, right? But the stuff you read in Revelation would make a wonderful collection of lawn ornaments. You know, I mean, think of what we find in there. We have these great beasts populating it. We have a really scary prostitute who shows up. We have demon frogs We have locusts that are like helicopter gunships, right? We have this imagery throughout the book of Revelation that is just amazingly bizarre, right? And has entertained people and inspired people and confused people for generations. But then at the beginning of the book, blessedly for preachers, we have these two chapters that are almost normal. Almost normal, right? first two chapters are sort of, you know, ordinary messages to churches, so we'll stick there for now. We won't go to the bizarre imagery too far. So John writes, and he writes this letter, and at the beginning of this letter, he has these special messages for each of the churches that he's told to write to. Each of these seven churches. Now why seven? Well, we know why seven, because seven is the universal number, and so seven means it's really a message to everybody the whole church for all time, including Christ Church. So this is a message to you, Christ Church, not just to the to Ephesus. The first message that he writes is to the church in Ephesus. Let me back up for a second. A Cheater's Guide to these churches, right? The, the, the seven churches are not ordered randomly here. There's a special order here that may be partly geographical, you go on a tour, right, you'll sort of go in a circle when you go to these seven churches. But more importantly, it's structured. The first and the last church, Ephesus and Laodicea, they are on life support. They are on the point of not being churches anymore. Right? So Ephesus and Laodicea, they're in trouble. Right? The middle three churches, Bergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis... They have a really mixed situation. They have some people who are faithful and some people who have been completely drawn away to heresy. Right? All of them. Different situations, but all, all those three churches. And then, blessedly, two and six, that is Izmir or Smyrna and Philadelphia, suffering but faithful. That's great, but two out of seven isn't great odds, is it? Right. Two out of seven churches in, are doing pretty well. Five out of seven churches are in pretty serious trouble. So with that as background, we then come to the first message, which is to Ephesus. And the church in Ephesus, there's a lot to like about this church. There's a lot to like. It's a great church in a very strategic location. Ephesus. If you take a cruise in the Mediterranean and goes by the Turkish coast, they will almost certainly take you to Ephesus. They'll they'll, uh, park the cruise ship and you'll get on a bus and they'll take you to Ephesus because this is one of the magnificent uh, archaeological sites of the ancient world. It ranks up there with Athens and with Rome in terms of its grandeur. And at the time that John was writing, it was one of the great cities of the Roman world, it really was. It was a gateway city into the whole province of Asia, into the whole of the Anatolian Peninsula. So most people, if they were going to travel from Greece or from Italy into Anatolia would go through Ephesus. Uh, It was therefore commercially really important and it was grand. I mean, you walk down the main street and even now you can picture what an amazingly wealthy city this was. You, you start at the top of the hill. anybody visited Ephesus? Oh, Rich has, good, okay, great. So you can picture this. If you start the top of the hill, walk down the main street, down at the bottom is this huge and magnificent library, the Celsus Library. And then, I mean, if you, if you could have seen it in its glory, then there would have been massive buildings on either side of it as well, and a huge covered marketplace. And then outside the city, one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis. The Temple of Artemis is almost all gone now, so a lot of people don't even bother visiting it, but they sure would have in the ancient world. It was a place of international religious pilgrimage. It was a must-see in the ancient world. It was the Taj Mahal of the ancient world, in a sense, right? It was massive, it had an altar the altar alone was 40 meters wide and 40 meters long, 20 meters wide. You can sacrifice a lot of animals on that altar. And you did because they had, well, what amounted to massive barbecues that could feed 40,000 people. You know this from archaeological evidence, the number of bones that were left behind. Right, So huge sacrificial feasts, everybody in the city would be expected to come. Now imagine being a small church in that setting in which you have this culture which is all built around this kind of worship just tied into the society to belong you have to participate right and if you don't participate then you're a rebel against it all then you're a traitor against it all this is the situation for the church in Ephesus but this church in the midst of that situation had been faithful and they have an amazing heritage right the the church actually we sometimes imagine it was founded by Paul you know because it was so important to him and he stayed for a long time but it wasn't it was there when Paul arrived Apollos had preceded Paul to, uh, to Ephesus, and we can read the whole story of its founding in the book of Acts. So it has Apollos, it has a special relationship with Paul, Priscilla and Aquila are there, right? So, so this is like stars of the New Testament all end up in Ephesus, and if we go forward, Timothy ends up being sort of the first bishop of the church in Ephesus, and then later on, after 70 AD, when there's a dispersion of Jews from Palestine because of the destruction of the temple, the Apostle John will end up there. So the Apostle John will, be, will end up being a leader of the church in Ephesus. We read in Acts 20 about Paul's special relationship with this church. You remember, he's, he's traveling back to Jerusalem and he has this meeting with the elders of the church in Ephesus and gives this heartfelt warning to them Uh, they're all in tears in this meeting and he warns them about the dangers that the church is in the danger of wolves coming in the danger of heresy tells them to be faithful and we have every reason to believe that they listened. every reason to believe that they listened because when we read this letter that John writes to the church in Ephesus there is so much good stuff in here I know your works. You're hardworking, he says. I know your labor. I know your patience. I know that you've endured so much. I know that you can't bear those who are evil. Right? You haven't put up with wickedness within your congregation. You've endured, you've been patient, you work hard. You've tested those who say they're apostles or not. You don't just let anybody into your pulpit, right? You, you want to make sure that the word of God is protected, that it's proclaimed clearly. You've persevered, you have patience, you've labored for my name's sake, and you have not become weary. So this is a church in a difficult situation with an amazing heritage that had not compromised. Wow, this is great. If we put this church in Greenfield, I have to say that for all the wonderful things about Christ Church, you might be tempted to go there. You might be tempted to switch over because although you have wonderful elders and Pastor Nathan is great, you know, if the Apostle John is preaching, you know, you may very well think maybe you should go over there instead, right? So, So this is this amazing church like Christ Church but even better now I might tell you here let's have a round of applause for the church in Ephesus but you, you know better right and besides which you know, good reformed congregations like us don't applaud right? so, so we will hold off the applause uh, for the church in Ephesus and just go on and say verse 4 then becomes this stark shock to us when we read that. And it must have been a shock to them when it was read in the church. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. All the good things that you've done, all the good things that you've done, but I have this against you. You don't want to hear those words from the Lord. I have this against you. You've left your first love. Now this is in some ways really brilliant, right, of Jesus through, Paul, through John, because he doesn't tell us exactly what he means by the first love. Right? What kind of love had they lost? Right? Had, they, had they lost their love for the Lord? Possibly, you know, it just wasn't what it was. Had they lost their love for each other? Maybe, we don't know, we can only guess. Had they lost their love for the people around them and the world that God had called them to love? Maybe, we don't know. All we know is that they used to do things that reflected, that flowed out of love and now they don't do them anymore. They used to have love and now they don't have love anymore. Mistakes are enormously high. Verse five, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. If they don't recover this love, do the things they did at first, then Jesus will come and take away their lampstand. Well, this is an image from chapter one and here's, uh, here's another little side note about how these messages are constructed, it's great. Each of these messages to the churches will have at the beginning a reference back to chapter one, to some of the imagery there, and a reference forward to chapters 21 and 22. Right? So, so each of them will have them, and so the reference here back to chapter one is, the, is Jesus walking among the lampstands, part of the vision that John has, What does this mean? Well, it comes originally from Zechariah, but the meaning would have been absolutely transparent, and that is Jesus walking among the lampstands is Jesus seeing, Jesus knowing, Jesus judging his churches. The simple message is, Jesus decides what a church is. You don't. Jesus decides who are the faithful churches. We don't. So he's walking among his lampstands, and he's ready to take the Ephesus lampstand away. It's that close, despite all this good stuff that has just been said. They're about to lose their lampstand. That is a really frightening thought. It's a really frightening thought because they're doing so much good, so much that looks great, so much that would fit great on a church resume if churches had resumes. Well, they do sort of, right? I mean, churches write reports and create marketing for themselves. And how do you market love? Right, you can't. You can't quantify it in that way. So the stakes are enormously high. He's about to decide, he is deciding which churches are real churches and which churches are not. One other thing I'll say is it reminds me a little bit of the Lord God walking in the Garden of Eden as well, seeing, knowing, judging. Jesus walking among the lampstands, walking among His churches throughout the world, walking here in Christ church, present, reminding us that He's present, reminding us that He knows who we are, reminding us that He is the judge of the church. And it gets actually a little bit worse in verse 7. Verse 7, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God, because implicitly that also is at risk here. If you're no longer a church, then chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation, which are these marvelous chapters of promise, may be taken away from. You may forfeit the tree of life. So here's a church that has everything, a model church, has great preaching, works hard, perfect doctrine, no love, nothing. And if we come to a passage like this at all surprised, and we haven't been reading our Bibles, have we? We certainly aren't remembering 1 Corinthians 13 if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but the angels, but do not have love, I am nothing. Right? And goes on and on, all the good things, all the things an amazing thing about that passage is all of the things look like love, right? I mean I give my body to be burned, what could be more loving than that you know giving my body is a sacrifice for other people but if you can do it without love and then you're nothing and we could travel through a lot of scripture there used to be this fun little exercise that you know a parlor game people would play imagining if we went through scripture and we just ex- took away everything that has to do for example with money how much of scripture would be left you know you'd have all these big uh, gaps in it because Scripture talks a lot about money. Uh, well, what if we took everything away, everything that springs from or talks about love? We wouldn't have any Bible left because throughout Scripture, almost everything comes back to the motivation of love of God, love of neighbor. Everything springs from that. Whole book of First John. Whole, whole First John is. Is, is a book which is completely devoted to this one simple theme, that is love among the brethren springing from the love of Christ that he has for us. But throughout Scripture, we find this over and over again, Colossians 3.14, 1 Timothy 1, 1.5. You can look those up later. And in the great theologies the great theologians of our history the theme comes up over and over again as well Augustine wonderful theologian wrote reams and reams but everything comes back to well what one of our friends here that you know Emma Kuypers called in this wonderful master's thesis she wrote the exegesis of charity that is love is the center of his method throughout if we if we look at Thomas Aquinas right love is at the center even if we look at Dante right Dante the culmination of everything is a is a vision of the love of God so love comes to the center for scripture for theology and the thing that makes it scary is that we can do all of these things that look like love and still somehow have missed it the modern church and I'm speaking of the modern church large worldwide, is good at a lot of things. We do a lot of things. We have a lot of things that, you know, we are competent at, theological education, children's ministries, small groups, publishing, media, youth work, translation, right? We support translation around the world, apologetic scholarship, we can be zealous for the truth, right? Organizations like the Gospel Coalition, you know, do wonderful work standing up for truth. And individual churches can be good at lots of things. Right? Can have their doctrine all right, can work really hard. But all of those activities, all of those tasks might amount to nothing. And, and here's why. I think we can, we can figure out why just by thinking a little bit. Because in our culture, we like to quantify things. We like to be able to list things and we like to be able to check them off. Right? I did a, a self-evaluation that I was required to do by an organization that we're affiliated with. Uh, and in this self-evaluation, you know, it had this whole list of things that you were supposed to check off whether you had accomplished this or not. And I came to the end of it, this is a Christian organization, and I thought none of this really is the stuff that matters at all. Will I care about any of these things? Will anybody who comes to my funeral care about any of these things in the end? No, I don't think they will. None of the things that amount to the virtues that matter appear in those things but they're quantifiable and the virtues that matter aren't quantifiable right when you're doing a search for a pastor our, our church in uh in istanbul recently did a search for a pastor and when you're doing a search for pastor then you know you you need resumes and you want to know where they're educated and of course you can test them on the rightness of their doctrine uh, it's awfully hard to measure whether they are reflecting love Right? It's not quantifiable, right? We want, that's the thing that matters most probably in the end, right? But we, we can't quantify. In a marriage, marriage, right? You, you, you know, love is going to be the thing that matters most. Can I measure the love that I have for my wife somehow by listing out per, the particular things that I've done for her? You know, if I, if I try to do that, it'll fall, fall a little bit flat, right? See, I love you because of I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this, and isn't that enough? That doesn't work. No, love does not work that way. All of these things that were good about the church in Ephesus, that are good about our modern churches, that are good about Christ church, are good things. All of them are important things. They're just not the main thing. Marvin Kuypers, who is a legend for many of us. Marvin was a mentor to me, was one of the founding members of Stony Brook, had been at College Church for many years, was a great friend of uh, of Christ Church, I you know, a great supporter of what you're doing here. Uh, Marvin Kuypers used to have these conversations just sort of on the side with leaders of our church that ended up being fixed in our memories. Here's one of them, and, and I'm not the only one that I had this, he had this conversation with. I remember this, you know, in the back of our auditorium, he pulls me aside and he says, you know, Dan, um, one of the things that's really important about a church is to have a good skeleton, right? You, your, the skeleton, like the doctrine, and having things, uh, you know, really clear about what you believe, that's really important. But he said, Dan, nobody wants to hug a skeleton. You have to have flesh on the skeleton. You, skeleton isn't the first thing you want to meet. So skeletons are really important. I'm in favor of skeletons. We have lots of jellyfish in, uh, the, off the coast of, of Turkey, and, and jellyfish, you know, are jellyfish because they have no skeleton. Right? So we don't want need to be jellyfish, but we need flesh on that skeleton. The flesh God calls us to put on that skeleton is the flesh. Of love so the message to Ephesus and to us is the skeleton is not enough the skeleton is not enough John the Apostle John at the end of his life uh, was back in Ephesus came back uh, as an old man he is one of the few apostles that actually lived uh, to ripe old age. Uh, and he grew so weak that he had to actually be carried to the meetings of the church on the Lord's Day. Uh, and there's stories about him that when he was carried, he could hardly talk, but he would, of course, be asked. I mean, he's was, he was a great leader of the church. He'd be asked for for a message, for some message to give to the church. And all that he could say and all that he would say was, Brothers, Little children love one another. Little children love one another. And if the Apostle John could come here today, and you were lucky enough to have him give the message, then I think he would have that simple message, and maybe that's all. Little children love one another. Because all the other measures of the success, or not, of a church, will fall by the wayside in comparison with one, that one great reflection of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Let's, let's pray.